Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Aremus. And I'm April Glazer. Hey, everyone. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, August 28th. On today's show, we'll discuss reports that big tech companies are lobbying in favor of a national privacy law, the very thing that you would think they don't want. We'll talk about what their motivations might be and why they might be eager to get ahead of whatever advocacy groups might be proposing instead. Then we'll be joined by Eugene Rochko, the founder of Mastodon. It's a social network that's becoming an increasingly popular alternative to Twitter. Rochko likes to say that you can join Mastodon if you want social networking without the Nazis. We'll talk to him about exactly how that works and the daunting obstacles that every social networking startup faces. And lastly, we'll have Don't Close My Tabs, some of the most interesting stories we found online this week. Hello, Will. How are you? I'm doing well, April. I am here in downtown Newark, Delaware, and I wanted to give a quick shout out to the people who heard our last episode and reached out to me on Twitter or email to say that they're from Delaware, too. Uh, so now I feel welcome in the state of Delaware, and I'm I'm an increasingly proud Delawarean, if that's how you say it. <laughs> well, I am actually uh, recording from Los Angeles today, one of my favorite cities in the country, working on a story and, and in kind of a big boomy house. So sorry if the sound sounds weird. And I also want to give a shout out to everybody that commented that I pronounced some things weird last week. Sometimes I do pronounce things weird. It's because I used to have a strong Southern accent. I'm from Nashville. And Sometimes I just don't sound like everybody else, even even though I worked hard to get rid of it. It's something that I'm sure will keep coming up. But uh, I'm glad that y'all are listening. It, it does mean a lot. All right, we'll we'll be sure. I'm sure I've mispronounced a lot of things too. We'll be we'll do our best to get everything right for our our nitpicky listeners this week. Oh, whatever. It's fine. We we love y'all no matter what, and I appreciate you listening closely. But uh, this week we are talking about the big tech platforms, as we tend to do, because they can't seem to keep themselves out of the news. And this time, Facebook and a kind of cadre of other large companies like IBM have gone to Congress to propose their own type of privacy law. Will, can you kind of break down what's going on here? Yeah. And let me say at the outset that, that this is based on great reporting by Cecilia Kang at the New York Times. Um, she wrote the story, Tech Industry Pursues a Federal Privacy Law on Its Own Terms. She did a lot of reporting to uncover that the big tech companies, you mentioned Facebook and IBM, there's also Google and Microsoft and many others, are banding together to lobby the Trump administration to start outla- outlining uh, privacy legislation. And that might sound, as April mentioned at the outset, that might sound like the opposite of what they want, right? They've fought for years to avoid regulation. Um, They fought against Europe's general data protection regulation, the GDPR. Now, why are they in favor of it? Well, the story does a great job of explaining. The answer is that states are starting to pass tough privacy laws. California passed the nation's toughest so far in June. Uh, It's loosely modeled on the GDPR, though it's actually a little weaker in some ways, as as you reported when it passed April. Uh, but the tech companies fear that other states will pass similar laws. Some states might pass tougher laws. And they see a national privacy law as a way to undercut the states and make sure that nothing too restrictive gets passed at the state level. 
Yeah, and it's important to remember that they have a lot of power nationally. Of course, they have a lot of power at the state level, too. And there have been attempts across the country for states to pass some sort of privacy legislation for many years. And these companies have been quite successful at kind of tamping those down. They've also been really successful at stopping national initiatives from gaining much steam. It's important to remember in all of this conversation that Facebook, Amazon, and Google have spent record numbers, uh, you know, amounts of money lobbying in Washington, D.C. this year as they spent record numbers last year. So they keep upping their their game here. Uh, they are incredibly powerful nationally. Yeah, there was a time long ago when Silicon Valley didn't play much in Washington or they were seen as the big tech companies were seen as naive about politics. That's not the case anymore. They're some of the biggest and most powerful lobbyists uh, in the country. Um, April, you've reported more than I have on the various legislative efforts. But when we talk about a privacy law uh, and we talk about California's, let's do that one because that one's already passed. We're talking about a a few things, right? We're talking about letting people opt out of uh, certain types of data collection. We're talking about fines for data breaches. That's right. We're also talking about limits on, say, what you can collect about minors. Uh, We're talking about the ability to request what information companies are collecting on you. So very similar to the general data uh, protection regulation that passed in the EU or that passed a couple years ago and and went into effect in, in May of this year. One thing that I think is is really interesting is the timing of this. I mean, we have to remember that it was in March that the Cambridge Analytica scandal really made headlines again in terms of, you know, the the Trump campaign uh using the voter targeting firm and then and then that voter targeting firm, you know, allegedly uh using data that was wrongfully at- obtained off Facebook. Uh, I think that was about 85 million Facebook users were affected by that and then hundreds of millions more users were affected by Facebook's porous data policies that kind of came to light uh, that we learned about after uh, the the news really made made headlines by Cambridge Analytica that lasted for, you know, well over a month and uh, led to multiple hearings. You know, now uh, it seems that these companies maybe feel that privacy regulation is inevitable and they're trying to get ahead of it. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and at the height of that backlash against Facebook, when Mark Zuckerberg was holed up somewhere in Menlo Park and wouldn't come out and the media was hounding right. them and, and cable news was talking about it every night. Um, Zuckerberg came out and said that they would support some kind of privacy legislation. That was part of Facebook's strategy to uh, dampen the controversy and to extricate themselves from the PR crisis that they were in. And in retrospect, I think their plan A at that point had to be exactly what we're hearing now, which is that they would try to get ahead of the game, try to get other tech companies on board, lobby the Trump administration and make sure that a fairly weak sort of milk toast privacy law was passed at the national level. And if the New York Times reporting is correct, the law that they want to advocate for at the federal level would actually invalidate, it would supersede the California law. And so this is in, in some respects could be seen as an end run around the fight that they've already uh, that that has already been uh, concluded seemingly in California. Yeah, and this is kind of a fear with with any national privacy laws that it would water down stronger state initiatives that are already out there, particularly when it comes to like uh, reporting on data breaches or, or you know how you are supposed to alert users on data breaches. There's different laws about that around the country. Uh, one thing that I uh, wrote about after Cambridge Analytica was the kind of lack of response from civil society groups. You know, I used to work in nonprofits that worked on on tech policy and and kind of tech justice issues. And I remember after uh, the NSA surveillance uh, and the, the the Snowden disclosures happened, it was very, very quickly that 
a national uh, petition was launched and hundreds of thousands of signatures and companies. And, you know, everybody was just really, really angry, up in arms. It was a big public campaign. A march was planned. After Cambridge Analytica, which was also a huge privacy scandal and, and the public's attention was focused on corporate data privacy uh, and corporate data collection, you know, in a way that I had not seen before, I did not see that response from uh, from civil society and sources on the Hill, uh, you know, uh, aides in, in, in various congressional offices told me that they were not getting calls uh, into their congressperson, even though there was interest in regulating these companies. You know, I know that there has been uh, a lot of kind of behind the scenes stuff and, and meetings and, and proposals and conversations. And it's not that civil society groups aren't talking to people uh, on the Hill, but I'm not seeing that kind of big public campaign that would really kind of push Congress members to, to, to feel like they have no choice but to do something and to do something in the public interest. I worry that now we're seeing this kinds of uh, regulatory proposals uh, from companies about how they would prefer to be regulated step up instead. Yeah, your, your reporting on this has really shaped my understanding of it. I mean, it, it seems like a lot of those nonprofits that were set up to protect the open internet, and they were set up with a with a belief and a faith in the power of the open internet, and so they are really good at mobilizing to get the government's hands off of it, but not necessarily so good at mobilizing to protect everyday users of the internet from the big corporations that now control it. I do want to say, I mean, we haven't seen yet what these companies are proposing exactly. It is alarming that they seem to be pushing for language that would invalidate the California law because from what I've heard, that seems like a pretty reasonable law. Um, so that's not a great sign. I don't want to totally prejudge what they might come up with, but I do think that it, it's just, it's not right for the companies that have been violating our privacy for all these years to be the ones that get to decide what the law is and and to sort of, you know, self-regulate here. I mean, they're, they're, it's it's just, I'm worried that the Trump administration will just go along with, with whatever they propose. Or at least get to start and frame the conversation publicly, right? Like we're not seeing the conversation begin with the public interest. We're not seeing the discussion about, you know, what, uh, you know, data privacy protection would mean in the U.S. start from what would be the healthiest for the users. Uh, instead, that conversation is, is making headlines kind of starting from the perspective of these companies. And that's really what worries me here. I mean, it's true that we don't know what's going to be in this law, but there's a big difference between what's best for the public and what's best for these companies. Companies, and these companies are going to propose what's best for them. I can't imagine them, you know, being amazingly altruistic here about, uh, you know, protecting our privacy when, as you said, they've, you know, displayed time and time again a dedication to protecting their bottom line first. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. That's I, I learned this term in Slate's negotiation podcast years ago called anchoring, where you have to get mm. your position out there first, and then the subsequent negotiation will revolve around your position. That's it seems like what that's what the tech companies are trying to do here. I, I want to include one more uh, uh, point, which is that I do think a national privacy law is the right idea. I mean, we, I, I do think that there is a valid argument that we don't want like a crazy quilt of different state regulations for internet service providers. The federal government is authorized to regulate interstate commerce and the, inter the internet seems like a textbook example of inter interstate commerce. So there's nothing wrong with a national privacy law in principle. The question is who gets to make those rules? 
Absolutely. And, and, you know, we also can look to GDPR, what's happening in Europe, as an example of what to do and perhaps what not to do. I mean, there have been reports that GDPR is actually entrenching the power of the, you know, already powerful internet companies because they're the ones that can afford to comply with these stricter privacy regulations. And so I think there's a lot to consider here. A patchwork, you know, does not really map on to the kind of boundless internet uh, at all when we talk about, you know, uh, one law being different in California than the law in Nevada or something like that. Let me ask you one more question, then we'll move on. Is there any organization or or group or legislator who you could see plausibly stepping up to, to carry the, the consumer side of this of this fight, to carry the uh, protecting individuals side of this battle over a future hypothetical privacy law? There are all kinds of fantastic civil society organizations that are doing great work. You know, I think Epic uh, is, is, is one. Uh, it's a Privacy Inform- Electronic Privacy Information Center, the Center for Media Justice, Color of Change. Uh, it's just that we're not seeing the kind of coordinated action that I've seen in the past, you know, like around net neutrality or uh, around, you know, the, the Snowden disclosures and NSA privacy. I'm not seeing this kind of like large bound together, mass petition, push, day of action where we kind of do a banner drop and black out the internet. I mean, you maybe remember SOPA PIPA at the time when those copyright laws were happening. That was a huge coordinated action that led to those laws or to those uh, proposals being, you know, the, the support of those being rescinded by lawmakers in mass, right? The internet knows how to mobilize here, and I'm not seeing that. There are fantastic groups that are that are doing work. Uh, in, in terms of lawmakers, I think Amy Klobuchar and Mark Warner, of course, have really been at the forefront of this. Uh, you know, we've also seen Senator Kennedy on the Republican side. Uh, it's it's certainly bi- there's certainly bipartisan interest here. But my primary question is, or my primary concern is, is the very real role of civil society groups. I I believe that there's power in uh, collective organizing, and uh, and I believe in democracy in that way. And so, Still? you know, I would hope to see some mobilization here. Not to sound preachy, I'm sorry if I do, but I do come from this background, so I'm speaking from experience. All right. uh, We're going to leave it there for the moment. When we come back, we'll have our interview with Eugene Rochko, the creator of Mastodon. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. So when I was 25 years old, I was living with four roommates, eating lots of burritos. I was covering school board meetings for the local newspaper in Palo Alto. Eugene Rochko is 25, and he has created a global social network that has emerged as an increasingly popular alternative to Twitter. Rochko is the developer behind Mastodon. You might have heard of it from people complaining that they're going to leave Twitter for a platform with less outrage or more privacy or fewer ads or fewer Nazis. 
Mastodon is similar to Twitter in layout, and Rochko was himself a frequent Twitter user, but it's different in a few key ways, which he's going to tell us about. Rochko launched the platform in beta almost two years ago, right after graduating from college in Germany, and that's where he joins us now via Skype. Thanks so much for being here, Eugene. Hi, thanks for having me. Can you give us just the basic outline of what Mastodon is, how it's similar to Twitter, and and one or two key differences? I quite liked your introduction. I think it was very uh, full of details. Um, Mastodon is a social media platform that it looks very similar to to how Twitter works or other platforms that are similar to Twitter. So it's it's not it's not new in how it in how you perceive it. However, the main difference is that it's decentralized. It is a a federated platform. A federation is is a collection of servers or websites, you could call them just websites that are in themselves independent, but can interoperate seamlessly with each other. Um, it all sounds very technical, but everybody uses a federated network already, and it's called email. Um, you have an account on Gmail, and your friend has an account on Outlook, and you talk to each other via email. And Mastodon works very similar to that, of course, using different technology, not email. You have an account on one server and your friend is on another and you can follow each other and it works just like a centralized network, except with the benefit that it's not. And the benefit of it not being a centralized network, it seems like there are a few. I mean, I remember after the Snowden uh, disclosures came out in 2013, there was a lot of excitement around switching off of the platforms that were complicit with NSA surveillance or that worked with the PRISM program like Facebook, uh, you know, like Google, and and just switching to these kinds of uh, decentralized federated alternatives, right? And the idea at that point was that it's much easier for the federal government to put in a request for a company that has all the servers in one place than it is to put in a request to, you know, a hundred or 50 or a thousand folks where this stuff is kind of all being, you know, stored and, and, and shared around the world. So I know that's one benefit to, to kind of decentralized federation. What's another? Exactly. Centralization is not just centralization of power, but centralization of data as well. So the more data a platform like Facebook collects, it's all in one place. It's easy to access, to analyze. With Mastodon, the data is separated. Every server stores only the data of its local signed up users and the data that they subscribe to from their friends. And so if you take the data just from one server, you don't have a lot. There, there are other differences that come from the design of the software itself in, in, in terms of the user interface, in terms of the functionality, that simply means that we collect less data than other platforms. But um, some of the other benefits of the decentralized approach are that, indeed, it's harder for governments to deal with that, not only in terms of collecting data or enforcing some kind of rule, uh, on top of everybody or, 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 uh, secret requests for, for tracking. Um, it also has, uh, to do with, with shutting down. For example, in, in a, in a country like Turkey or, you know, some other place where the government, um, wants to, uh, block access to particular content on the internet, it's easier to, uh, block one website than it is to block a network of two or 3,000 different websites that anybody could use any one of. 
Yeah, you had a good point in a uh, blog post that you wrote called Twitter is not a public utility. You said, isn't it a bit strange that the entire world has to wait on the CEO of Twitter to come around on what constitutes healthy discourse? Um, recently, we were all waiting to see what Twitter's decision would be on whether Alex Jones and Infowars could stay on the platform or not. And you argue that that's unhealthy, that one private company has the power basically to decide who gets to speak on on the big uh news and microblogging network that everybody has to use. Um, so Mastodon has a bunch of different little sub-networks, and you call them instances. I was uh, signing up the other day. I noticed there were instances for Berliners, people from Berlin, for anime, for furries. What are a couple of the other most popular uh, Mastodon instances? Um, well, the most popular one is a Japanese instance called Pawu for, for artists. Uh, then the next one is the one that I run, uh, which is more of a general purpose one, but people use it because it has the developer behind it and it has this promise of stability and, you know, they know it's not going to disappear. Um, then and that's mastodon.social, right? That's mastodon.social, indeed. Um, the other one is Twitter.at, which is a, a Mastodon server for sex workers, which has occur- uh, which has uh, been founded in the wake of the f- uh, FOSTA and SESTA bills in the U.S. And that's another point that would fit in the previous question: why why is decentralization better than than centralization? And it is because currently the top social networks all depend on U.S. law: Reddit, Twitter, Facebook. Etc. They enforce U.S. law uh, globally, and when such stupid laws are passed, it it affects everybody worldwide. Uh, and Twitter, it's hosted in uh, Australia, where sex work is legal, and so it provides a safe haven for for people who are not welcome on other platforms anymore. You know, and one thing uh, about the the Japanese community is that that is a community that actually is uh, making art um, about usually young children being naked. It's not exactly child porn because it's art, but it's something that uh, would be censored in the U.S. And in fact, those communities were kicked off of uh, Twitter and the main social networks, right? And so they found a home on Mastodon. Is that correct? As far as I'm aware, that's not the main purpose of Pawu. Okay. Pixif is just a general purpose art website, uh, like DeviantArt is in the West. Uh, it just so happens that it attracts a certain demographic because Japan has more liberal laws on that topic. But it's, it's, not, it's not a very pleasant topic to talk about. Uh, on Mastodon.social, we have uh, blocked uh, images from Pawu just to be safe on the safe side of that. That's right. uh, uh, thankfully it is possible to control uh, what you uh, how how this how your server interoperates with other ones. This, it's it's a common uh, it's a common thing that people bring up when they talk about Mastodon. What happens if bad people create a server? Um, and the answer is you don't have to communicate with that server. It's very easy to block. Uh, there are different levels that so you can block a server from uh, simply. Uh, hiding it from from the uh, local timelines of of the user interface to blocking content wholesale to simply blocking images uh, so that they don't appear on your server. 
So one one issue though that it seems kind of comes up for any alternative social network um, when you know people are getting booted off of the main platforms is that those who it may initially attract are users who are ostracized from the big platforms, and those fringe communities may come to you know be a early defining characteristic of, of, you know, any alternative that comes up. So have you kind of had to deal with a lot of, you know, say like white supremacists, uh, that are coming to, uh, to Mastodon or people that are interested in revenge porn, you know, where they weren't allowed on Facebook and Twitter and instead are, are coming to, to Mastodon. And, and I understand that, you, you know, the whole point is that, uh, if you don't want to be a part of those communities, you can leave. You know, on like with these major platforms, you know, you, if, if there's, if these kinds of hate communities are on there, then, then they're on there with everybody else. Well, it just so happens that the people who get ostracized from platforms like Twitter are not white supremacists, but people from the left, people who are queer, people who are trans. And so that's the it's community true. that Mastodon has historically been most most closely related to and and most uh populated by uh and i'm jewish so white supremacists are not necessarily eager to use software made by a jewish guy yeah all kinds of people have been booted off of these social networks that's true the activists has, have had a very difficult time uh in terms of facebook uh you know kicking them off for various reasons as well that is a good point yeah, so this reminds me a little bit. I mean, one of the moments when a lot of people were talking about leaving Facebook was when there was a backlash by the uh, trans community and the drag community against Facebook's real name policy. People fled to an alternative social network called Elo. It's great that these alternative networks exist, but uh, you know there is such craving, uh, I think, among even among a mainstream audience for alternatives to these social networks, and yet. When you go to Mastodon, if you're not part of a specific community that has moved there in en masse, you might find yourself a little lonely. I mean, the, the people you know are unlikely to be using it on a regular basis. This is the big obstacle that they all face. I mean, you go there to escape the Nazis or you go there to talk with other people uh, who have a similar interest to you. But then you find out that all the people you really want to communicate with aren't there and you end up migrating back to Twitter or Facebook as much as you may hate it for various reasons. Is there is there a, a solution to that or is is there a way that Mastodon could could grow and become large enough that you get those kind of friend networks and, and network effects or are you uh, intending to stay small and, and just and maybe make that sustainable somehow? Network effects are universal. That's true. Um, they don't affect just Mastodon. It happens to every new platform. Um, however, I um, think that the fact that some of the now popular platforms also had to start at some point and they managed to break through the network effect barrier is a good sign that we do have a chance. Um, and in fact, Mastodon already has a very uh, good starting pool of, of people who use it. There's uh, 1.5 million people who are on Mastodon. And even though maybe you're not going to have the exact same friends that you made on Twitter there, um, you'll find new ones. And, and I think that's that's the point and maybe a bit of a wrong expectation that people go into uh, because people think, well, I'll just switch from one website to another and it's going to be the same but different. But Mastodon is a new platform and it brings new chances to people to make new friends, new connections, build a new audience. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be one-to-one -one 
uh, as to what you had on Twitter. You know, and you do have a good point. Uh, you know, I remember in, in 2006, MySpace reached like 100 million users, and it was the most popular social network in the U.S. at the time. And then less than two years later, in 2008, Facebook had reached twice that number, right? And uh, and that was just right after allowing anyone older than 13 to join the network. So things certainly do change, and often people join a lot of social networks at once, and then kind of stick with the one they like the most and delete the others from exactly. their phone or stop using them. So, you know, things things certainly do change. But I am curious, you did mention the word sustainability, and that is a, a major question I have. Mastodon is not run by ads, right? How How is it sustainable? How are you guys, you know, kind of dealing with the server space or paying the bills? Well, it is funded by the community. Crowdfunding is big in 2018, and it's proven that it works. Um, I mean, many years back, you know, crowdfunding was was not a thing, and, and websites or software that relied on donations was not doing very well at all. But in 2018, people finally understand uh, the value of being a, a patron to something that they value that does not necessarily have commercial value. Um, and we now have tools to redistribute uh, small amounts of money to creators and, and people who do something that you like. And so most Mastodon servers are crowdfunded by their users. And my work on Mastodon is likewise funded by my patrons on Patreon. Eugene, I know that in a lot of ways, Mastodon is seen as an alternative to Twitter, and you have been a critic of Twitter. If you were running Twitter, if you were Jack Dorsey, what's one thing that you would do differently than he's doing? Or do you think that, that Twitter itself is the problem, that it's just broken and there's no, there's no way to make it better? The main reason I don't like Twitter in 2018 is their position on free speech and their position on hate on their platform. Um, the thing is, Twitter is a company, and Jack Dorsey does have like 100% right to decide what they're hosting and what they're not hosting. And he chooses to uh, give verified marks to white supremacists, and uh, he refuses to act on reports of, of that sort of thing happening on his platform. And yes, if I was running Twitter, that's the thing I would do differently. And that's how I run my server. We don't tolerate that thing, uh, that stuff. We have a strict code of conduct. And that's why people like being on Mastodon.social. And that's why people like Mastodon. Wow. So you can have a kind of a free software alternative that also is a safe space, right? Now, Mastodon is free software, isn't it? Yes, it is free software. I should note that I, I have heard from some people on Twitter complaining about the moderation on Mastodon.social, um, saying that you didn't respond to complaints they had. So it, I think it's really hard to please everybody when you're doing community moderation. It's it's indeed. When you have a lot of people using something, somebody's going to have complaints. Not every complaint is uh, justified. Some are. We have a team of moderators working on this. We have good faith in, in, in what we're doing. And we have a zero tolerance policy for Nazis on the platform. Eugene, that'll do it for this interview. Thanks so much for joining If Then. Uh, thanks for interviewing me. One final quick break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week.
is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Will, what could you not close this week? My tab this week comes from the information. And I should warn you, you have to have a subscription to read the whole thing. But you can actually read a lot of it on the Twitter feed of the story's author. That's Amir Efrati. The story is headlined, Waymo's Big Ambitions Slowed by Tech Trouble. This is about Waymo, the self-driving car division of Alphabet. This was previously Google's self-driving car project. With Uber having so many troubles lately, Waymo is pretty much the unquestioned leader right now in fully autonomous vehicles, cars that drive themselves without any human intervention. This story is based on some really interesting reporting from Chandler, Arizona, a suburb of Phoenix, where Waymo has been testing its self-driving technology lately. For years, Waymo did its tests in Mountain View right around the Google headquarters. It's now branched out to several cities around the country. And this story focuses on a particular problem that Waymo's cars are having. There is a T intersection right near Google's testing facility in Chandler, where its self-driving minivans have to routinely make right turns and left turns. They seem to be making the right turns with no trouble, but when they try to make a left turn, they have a lot of trouble finding an opening in the cross traffic to get in uh, and, and to make that turn safely. They just don't seem to be able to judge it very well. They end up hesitating a lot, and apparently local residents in Phoenix are getting furious because they end up sitting behind these self-driving minivans at the intersection as the minivan just hesitates and hesitates and inches forward and waits for the right time to make that left turn. Um, and so it's just a fascinating peek into uh, th the problems that self-driving technology still runs into, these sort of edge cases. This isn't even a really bizarre edge case. This is just a fairly normal driving scenario that autonomous technology can't yet handle. To me, the story just throws some cold water on the idea that we hear all the time, which is that fully self-driving cars are just around the corner or we're almost there. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty clear from this article that it's going to be a while before they figure out all these little quirks. These little quirks are not quite little quirks. They're quirks that could cost someone's life, as we've seen already, and when these when these vehicles have failed. So uh, I'm glad that this reporting is continuing, and I hope that nobody is under any sort of delusion that these you know machines are at all ready to 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 be in the mix safely with with many humans on the road. All right, April, what tab could you not close this week? My tab this week is a story from NBC News. It's called Secret Message Board Drives Pizzagate-Style Harassment Campaign of Small Businesses. It is a story about these folks who have kind of been organizing to brand local businesses like ones in Portland and D.C. as ones that kind of uh, harbor pedophile rings. And, and these are alt-right people or people that believe in the kind of QAnon conspiracy theory. It's a story of how they coordinate, uh, like, for instance, on Discord, which is a kind of gaming chat platform that allows people to have private servers where, you know, you can only be invited in with an invite link, as well as on Twitter and Facebook groups to, uh, to, to research, as they call it. They call themselves patriot researchers to kind of find out, you know, 
uh, as they say, if if these types of businesses are actually harboring uh, pedophile activity, as they claim, um, you know, in most cases, this seems to be completely fabricated. And these communities have uh, kind of popped up to keep these conspiracy theories alive and thriving and also thrust them into the real world. And we do know that this does, you know, have extreme consequences, these types of research communities. Not only do they kind of bomb the pages of local businesses, and, and when I say pages, I mean like their Instagram comments their Facebook pages, their Yelp pages, with accusations of, of you know, really terrible criminal activity that doesn't seem to be, you know, based in any sort of reality, but uh, but but also, you know, could lead somebody, as, as would happen in Pizzagate, to walk into a, a restaurant with a, with a loaded rifle. And so it's a, just a really interesting story about how these kind of conspiracy theories or the conspiracy theorists that, that uh, adhere to them gather and coordinate and decide to group research and campaign. And um, basically they just, they do it using social media in private groups. And, uh, and they, they kind of tap each other on the shoulder and say, Hey, we need more researchers join us. So, uh, you know, these communities really are online communities. And that's really my takeaway from this is that, you know, as much as we are seeing these, these kinds of actions thrust into the real world, they are communities that are coordinated online. And, you know, that means when they're deplatformed or when they're kicked offline, it's going to be very hard for them to exist and gather. And it really kind of brings into focus the importance of the conversations around who does and does not get to use these social networks. I'm not going to put any sort of prescription on there, but it just shows the strength. Yeah, this is really depressing. I mean, to me, it just is another indicator that the wisdom of the crowds, like this idea that you could build these platforms like YouTube and Yelp and Twitter and people would contribute to them and the good stuff would rise to the top. It's just it's just can be overwhelmed by trolls or by organized harassment campaigns. And it's got to be dispiriting for these businesses, which are, you know, the owners are just trying to make a living. The workers are just trying to make a living. And they're being accused of pedophilia on public boards where everybody can see it, including their customers. You know, I, I think that this has always been kind of a tactic of, of hate groups to, to demonize uh you know, local businesses for whatever reason, uh, but the type of coordination that's possible kind of on a national level for these local businesses is, is really something. And and to be sure, the message boards that are pointed out in this story are not the only ones that uh, that people on the fringe right use to coordinate their activity and thrust themselves into the real world. Uh, so, you know, this is something that I'm definitely going to keep tracking and, and looking for stories around. And it's a great story. I recommend people check it out. All right, that's going to wrap for our show today. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Oremus. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. It's a big part of promoting our show, and we deeply appreciate it. We'll see you next week.